just like that, we are at episode number 10. I want to say thank you to everyone out there who has shared some of their time with us. As of this air date, my podcast tracker says we have been listened to in over 20 countries worldwide. That's absolutely amazing to me. We set out to do this show to just provide a positive place for people to share their stories and bring a little bit more positive light into the world. Judging by what I'm receiving in feedback, people are loving it, so we're going to keep doing it. If you'd like to hear from someone again who's already been a guest or you want to recommend a guest, drop me a line to pod at artistemotion.com or fill out the form on the artistemotion.com website. I would suggest you talk to the person you're recommending and get their permission to share their contact info with us just for the record. Okay, let's get to the real reason you all tuned in this week. Episode number 10 features my buddy Bill Parsons. Bill is a friend and a mentor to me in the arts. We bounce ideas off of each other and handle a significant amount of background duties for the organization we both share lineage under, which is the IKCA. Bill can always be counted on to provide well-thought-out opinions, and he's a loyal and trustworthy brother to everyone who earns a place in his life. I'm proud he calls me his friend and honored he chose to act as an advisor to me personally and to my school. Let's get to hearing from Bill. Here we go. All right, welcome to the Artist of Motion today. My guest today is one of my mentors. He is a brother in the arts. He's a friend to me in both the arts and in life. He is a career veteran of the United States Air Force, and we greatly appreciate and thank him for his service to his country. Currently holding instructor certification in two different martial arts, he is the head of Triangle Kempo Institute in Raleigh, North Carolina, and a longtime IKCA staff member. He serves as an advisor to several martial arts organizations in addition to teaching his regular weekly classes. My guest is the one and only Bill Parsons. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? It's a lovely Saturday morning out here. So the uh, Northern California weather is kind of like weather by Sybil. You know, you never know what what you're going to get every day these days. Some days it's 95 and the next day it's 40. So who knows? I perfectly understand. North Carolina weather is the same way. Yep, I think we're pretty much geographically situated, so we're about the same uh, uh, latitude here. So, anyway, so for those of us uh, out there who are not familiar with you, can you give us some background? You know, where did you start training? Where are you at today? What are you up to? Well, I started the martial arts in 1972. Had a buddy stop by and asked me if I wanted to take karate. Uh, at that time, not knowing what karate was, uh, when he told me it was how to learn how to fight, I was pretty much uh, in from the word go. Uh, not because I wanted uh, to learn how to fight, but because it was almost a necessity. Uh, given my physical makeup at the time, very tall, very skinny, I was uh, pretty much a target uh, at the <laughs> school I was in. So I was most definitely uh, uh, wanting to do something to you know, uh, mitigate all those uh, things from happening. So we went down to school, the school, and the school was run by Mr. Bruce Jushnik, now of course your roof fame. Uh, and at the time, he was teaching a Tracy Kempo uh, offshoot, uh, and uh, I believe that his instructor was Daniel Babcock. But at that time, he was a third degree with his own school. And my friend and I studied there for about six to eight months, uh, and from there... Uh, you know, went on to uh, went on to other things. Uh, a couple of years later, when I entered the service, uh, began to be stationed in different places. And I think one of the unique things about being in the military and being a martial artist, if you're halfway serious about it, you really get exposed to a lot of different arts because of just the nature of military life. Uh, you couldn't come to a base and say, I specifically want to study this art, because at that time, 
uh, when we're talking the mid 70s at that point at that time the arts uh, although present on military bases you know you kind of had to take what you could get um, and that was my beginning in the martial arts kind of an upbringing went through some training in uh, kaju kenbo uh, tong sudo uh, silom gong fu uh, and most of the time i would study those for year and a half two years until it got to uh uh, where I was having to PCS and go to a different base. And I received orders to Korea, uh, Kunzan Air Base, Korea. Uh, and at that time, I was mainly Chinese arts um, and wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. Uh, and about four months before actually uh, hopping on the plane to Korea, I saw a little movie called Billy Jack, hmm. and I was sold. Um, not for the acting in that movie, not for the plot line in that movie, uh, but for the uh, martial arts. Uh, and I immediately went out and researched who Bong Su Han was uh, and what that art was that he was uh, demonstrating in the movie. Uh, so when I got to Korea, first thing I did was sign up for a hop keto class. Um, and was there for a year, um, achieved my first Don ranking in that, and pretty much stuck with Hop Keto uh, for up until about 1999. Um, certified instructor for a couple of or- Hop Keto organizations, and, um, and then I returned to Kempo in uh, 1999 uh, through the Karate Connection. And that pretty much sums up where I was at up until about 2000. And I've been with the uh, IKCA uh, ever since with, uh, you know, IKCA Chinese Kenpo. So can we talk about your military background for a little bit? Certainly. So if I'm remembering correctly, you were uh, one of the air crew on a B-52 bomber, correct? That's correct, but that was in the second half of my career. Oh, goody. Let's uh, talk the... about the first half. <laughs> well, I ended I entered the uh, I entered the Air Force uh, enlisted because I did not have a college degree. In fact, my dad was very uh, straightforward and honest, and he said, uh, "You know, I can't afford to send you to college. My recommendation is that you go in for uh, go in for four years." At uh, this time, this was the tail end of the Vietnam War, so by volunteering for the Air Force, I eliminated myself from the possibility of the draft. Uh, in the Vietnam War. So uh, if I said, if I go, because I was choosing what to go, what service to go in as, uh, I could almost, you know, guarantee that I wasn't going to be, you know, stuck in a rice paddy in Vietnam. But all due respect to every, all of that, our guys who did that. That's correct. Having said that, it was just a choice that I made. Um, and I was also, uh, at that time, they had the old GI Bill, so I wanted to be able to, you know, get my college degree when I got out and, and press forward from there. Uh, as it was, uh, I actually ended up staying in, much to the chagrin of my father. He just wanted me to go in just long <laughs> enough to get the benefits and get out. But much to his chagrin, I stayed in um, and uh, worked on my uh, college degree nights and weekends, uh, and then um, went to uh, 
was selected once I got my degree, it was selected for officer training school. So basically the breakdown was the first half of my career was enlisted. The second half was as an officer. Uh, another way to break it down is uh, first half of my career, I turned wrenches uh, and loaded weapons on B-52s. Then I cross-trained a command post and controlled them. Uh, this was during the Cold War. Um, and then the last half of my career, I flew them. So I was pretty much tied almost all of my career to the B-52 uh, with sometimes with some a couple of the fighter aircraft. And I know just from you know our relationship that that B-52 means a lot to you. So how about talking a little bit about that B-52 and why you're so fond of it? Well, I think I'm fond of it because hands down, it's the best bomber that the Air Force has ever uh, agreed to be in the inventory uh, to this day where they're uh, retiring or considering retiring aircraft that were built long after it, uh, they're still talking about re-engineering and reformatting the B-52 all the way out to 2050, okay? I'm sorry, so, that was 2050, right? That's correct. And when they first started designing it, it was 1953. So if they retired in 2050, Based on when they uh, delivered the first one, uh, that aircraft will have been in the inventory over 90 years. Yeah, according to a quick Google search I just did, the B-52 entered service in February 1955. So, yeah, That's if it perfect. lasts till 2050, that, yeah, nine, 95 years in service. Wow. Right. And that was a year and a half before I was born. And then in the 80s, I was flying those aircraft that were built in 56 and 57. And enter the inventory. So it's just one heck of an airplane. It's done everything the Air Force has asked it to do. Uh, and the crews have done everything that the Air Force has asked them to do. Uh, high level, low level, nuclear, conventional, all of those things. It's just one heck of an aircraft. So with respect, I do not want to ask you to divulge any classified information, but are there any uh, particular flights that you have fond memories of that you can talk about? Well, we did an um, avionics test uh, one time. Um, without going into too much information, but that avionics test took us over uh, the geographic North Pole. Ooh. Um, Did you bring a camera? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we did We did have cameras on board, but everything was white. So, you know, it's just, <laughs> it was a pretty boring picture. But, um, yeah, we flew up to the top of the uh, Earth, uh, and it was testing a navigation system. Uh, and luckily, uh, when we hit the North Pole, we did two 360-degree turns around the top of the Earth. And being that this was the absolute height of the Cold War, uh, we're lucky we came back down on the correct side of the Earth. So, And you're still here to talk about it, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, got, was, uh, I've got several of my buddies who were pilots, you know, whether it be for the military or whether it be private, um, but all of them say that there's just nothing like being up in the cockpit and looking out the window sometimes, and it's just this this serenity of just looking on forever. Well, we were downstairs in B-52 because I was a radar navigator, first a navigator, then a radar navigator. I guess radar navigator, uh, if you watch all the old World War II movies, it would be what would be referred to as the bombardier. Um, so having held both of those positions, we had no windows downstairs. All we had was a couple of high-resolution cameras uh, that we could peek outside once in a while. All right, fair enough. <laughs> I'm, I'm still tripping over that 95-year service when it hits 2050. That's just crazy. 
Okay, so let's switch gears and go back to uh, the Hapkido training. So you were authorized by Bong Su Han as an instructor himself, right, through a written letter, if I remember that correctly? Well, what it was was when I returned uh, in 1977, uh, having had my first don, um, I was actually stationed after the uh, uh, after returning from Korea in Robbins Air Force Base, Georgia, which is around Macon, Georgia. And at that time, not knowing what to do, and with my brand new shiny black belt, um, you know, I was uh, looking to uh, start something in in the area uh, for the art of Hapkido. Uh, so I wrote uh, Mr. Han, Master Han, and basically said, "Here's here's uh, who I am. Uh, my instructor in Korea." Uh, Bong Su Han was his instructor before uh, Master Han immigrated to the United States. So there was an, an in there, I guess you could say. Um, but having with that knowledge, um, and, you know, at that time it was part of the Korean, uh, Korea Hapkido Association, led by at that time Ji Han Jae, uh, who now is the founder of the Sinmu Hapkido uh, organization. But at that time, the arts were pretty heavily regulated uh, in the country of South Korea. Uh, but coming back, there was really no major Hapkido organizations uh, in the United States at that time, or it was on a very limited basis. And uh, so I uh, wrote uh, Master Han and basically said, here I am, this is where I'm at. Do I have permission uh, you know, to teach, you know, because I, I just didn't know, you know, where to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote a very, very gracious letter uh, back to me, which I've still got in my files, uh, that basically acknowledged, um, you know, uh, my standing, uh, where I was at, and he gave me permission uh, to teach. Uh, I, I don't want to misrepresent myself in the fact that I was not a a representative of his or anything else like that. It was just him granting me permission to teach uh, the art of Hapkido because at that time, Hapkido was still fairly unknown uh, before the big boon of the uh, 1980s where um, every Taekwondo school in America started teaching Hapkido. So, mm-hmm. uh, but at that time, being the uh, late 70s, it was still re- uh, relatively unknown. Um, and so I had that permission and I, I took it in and ran with it. So that's a quite a, quite an endorsement there for somebody at that stage of your career. So bra- bravo, sir. Uh, it was, I think it was uh, very gracious on his part to, uh, to, to allow uh, me and quite frankly, having not met me face to face to give me that permission uh, to do so. so. Looking over your biography on a couple of different websites here, uh, there's, a statement you made on one of them that says, the, as such, you became a student of a few different arts, and the ones that affected your martial arts thinking and execution the most during that period, which would have been the late 70s, early 80s, uh, you talked about Wan Hop Kwendo, uh, Kajukenbo variant, and Silam Gung Fu, and Wing Chun Gung Fu, and then Five Animal System Gung Fu. So <clears throat> what about those systems were such a big uh, evolutionary process driver for you? Well, I think that all of those, uh, especially Wan Hop Kundo, uh, there's, there's variants on Kaju Kenbo. Uh, and, but Wan Hop Kundo under Al DeCosco's 
is very much a Chinese influence based, uh, and it was uh, the movements and whatnot that uh, were being taught. Uh, and I ran into a Wan Hopkundo instructor uh, at Lowry Air Force Base up in Colorado and studied with him for a, for a short time. But given the nature of the Chinese systems that I had taken to and liked, uh, that particular variant of uh, Kajikenbo was, was very much in line with those things. Um, I think that what what really drew me to the Chinese arts were, I was not one, I've never have been one to be big on mass, um, in the sense that I've never been a, a real muscular person. Uh, tall and lanky is always the way that, you know, somebody describes me. Um, now, as I've as I've aged, I have gotten thicker, uh, but, um, you know, it's still very much, you know, long-limbed, uh, and the Chinese arts, I think, uh, at least what I took from them, lended uh, those type of movements to my structure. Uh, I found those type of circular movements, long extended movements, not overextension, but extended movements, uh, more to my liking. Um, I, I'm, I'm 99.9% sure that I would never, ever, ever make a good, uh, you know, uh, Shotokan black belt uh, or something that's very, uh, very small, compact, you know, short type movements. Um, and the Chinese arts lend themselves to, I think my physiology, which is why I, I was uh, so drawn to those. Okay, so I get the I get the physiology and physical part to it. What was the mental uh, the mental generation point for you? I think the mental generation uh, uh, when it comes to the Chinese art is that I had the benefit of learning from instructors, and many of those were military gentlemen that always felt the need to explain why we were doing something. Now, I'm not saying that's not present. In other arts, it just seemed at the time that I was studying that the um, the Chinese arts always tended more towards the explanation of what we were doing, uh, both the, um, you know, getting the external facets of it, but also internalizing the arts. Uh, whereas some of the other arts at that time, um, you know, didn't... Um, didn't have that emphasis. And I was very fortunate when I got to Korea and began to study Hapkido because, you know, coming primarily from the Chinese arts, the prospect of going to Korea and saying, okay, because at that time, the only familiarity I had with the Korean arts were Taekwondo, Tong Soo Do, uh, not having studied any of those formally until after I returned from Korea. So there was an expectation, being what I considered myself to be a Chinese martial artist, there was an expectation that when I got to Korea, oh, everything's going to change. Uh, luckily, the blessing uh, was that Hapkido doesn't think like that. Uh, and luckily, my instructor didn't think like that. So uh, having that flow, having that uh, blend of circular and linear movements that I found and appreciated in the Chinese arts 
was also present in uh, Hapkido when I began studying that. So it was an easier transition for me to do that. Um, and my Hapkido instructor explained the spot out of everything that he was doing. Now, sometimes you had to concentrate really hard because, uh, you know, English was definitely not his first language. But he would always take the time and explain those things. And that's what I think I liked about the Chinese arts. Uh, it, you know, the mind is in 65 to 70 percent of being able to defend yourself. And the Chinese arts, to me, always lent themselves, you know, toward uh, explanation and understanding. Uh, for some of the stuff was kind of funky that you were learning, but you... Uh, you had to understand it uh, in order to pull it off. That makes sense. I mean, there's there's so many different movements in just about any art you can think of. There's so many different movements that you look at and you go, what the heck is the purpose of this? And then you realize, you know, especially if it's something in the early levels, this is not really something you're going to use, but it's teaching your body to move in a way that I can use later to take you someplace new. Precisely. Precisely. Um, and to the point of not using it, uh, very limited use very specific use uh, but that lends itself to uh, making sure that you have the ability to recognize relative position to uh, to an attacker as to whether or not something can be used so. oh see now you used a term that I have quite frankly stolen and I use quite frequently so relative body position is a concept that I've heard a lot of people talk about and you're the first person I've seen encapsulated into a specific term. So tell us about relative body position, sir. Well, relative body position really is kind of a term I've coined to describe what I think should be happening during a successful self-defense encounter. And, you know, it's a term that I, I've, I've, I've come up with that's kind of based on two different principles from two different arts that I've learned. One's position recognition from Kempo, and the other is the water principle from Hapkido. And to kind of set a picture, when an, when an altercation occurs, really from the defender's perspective, there's two things happening, technique and movement. And technique is what you're doing in response to uh, an attack, whether it's blocking, striking, kicking, locking, throwing, uh, redirecting, you know, whatever the physical manifestation of how you're defending yourself uh, takes place. And that's really where position recognition comes in because you recognize the position that a particular attack places you in, and then you're going to respond with a technique that you've been taught based on that position. And that's something that I think that Kempo teaches and practices very well. The issue is, is what happens uh, at the end of that technique. And we can talk about the Kempo cover-out and everything else, but really what happens at the end of that technique should be movement. In any self-defense encounter, you should never stop moving. And movement happens uh, when it's necessary to adjust your position, uh, whether that's adjusting that position is forced due to what's happening with the individual or things not going exactly right in the technique or whether it's by your choice to move 
uh, to a different position, maybe even to disengage. And that's kind of where the water principle takes over. Hakeem teaches the water principle in this respect, that when water hits something, it immediately adapts to its shape and envelops it. And when that happens, uh, you have the ability to uh, automatically be in a different position than what you uh, started from. And sometimes maybe even going through whatever it is and penetrating uh, action of the water. Same thing can happen with the technique that you're doing, uh, and it necessitates that movement. So whether the movement is because we're successful or whether the movement is based on necessity because we have to make a, a, a midstream adjustment, um, that's what the water principle teaches, and that's what needs to happen in a self-defense encounter. If none of this start, stop, start, stop, there should be a continuous flow. If you're not executing a technique, you should be moving. That movement either takes you away from the encounter or that movement takes you to another uh, recognized position so that you can continue if necessary. So we keep moving just like water uh, keeps moving. So picture this. We execute, we move, whether that's an adaptation uh, or whatnot, we execute again, we move again, whatever it takes until we can successfully disengage from it. So that's kind of what relative body position means to me. I've had some people uh, take it to mean, well, you're just restating position recognition in a different way. Well, position recognition is part of it, but it's not all of it. Uh, it needs to, movement absolutely needs to take place um, in the self-defense encounter because if you freeze, if you stop, uh, you are now in allowing the uh, attacker to regroup, and that's not something that we want to happen. I take... One technique might take two, might take some parts of a technique, most likely, is what's going to happen. And then it's a movement. Don't stop moving until you've either neutralized the attack or you've escaped. And one of the things that helps me is that I envision an attacker inside a sphere. I'm either going through that sphere or I'm going around it. It doesn't matter to me which one I do, but... In doing those things, I can make sure that hopefully I'm minimizing my exposure and maximizing my effect on the attacker. To me, that's what relative body position means. I hope that clears my. <laughs> Actually, I really appreciate it. You got a lot of information into there. But now you also gave us our next topic. So let's talk about technique-based training. Well, technique-based training, you know, there's, there's uh, everybody goes to um, great lengths nowadays. Uh, and it really started, I guess, back in the uh, 80s, uh, where it really started to come to the fore, is the reality-based martial arts. And, you know, you've got to do this because, uh, you know, technique training doesn't work. Uh, you know, everything has to be spontaneous because, 
degree you know, or uh, uh, technique training doesn't work. I sat back one day and I looked at boxing. And uh, I, I think a lot of people would agree that, you know, uh, you know, the art of uh, Western boxing, uh, you know, it's called the sweet science. Well, it's the sweet science because, uh, you know, the ability to maneuver around an individual to create the opening that you need for the strikes that you have um, is, is beautiful. I mean, a, a good boxer. Uh, especially a boxer versus a brawler, uh, you know, you'll see somebody uh, take apart uh, somebody who's relying on uh, nothing more than size and strength and mayhem in order to, um, um, you know, try to score a knockout. And it's beautiful to see a, a classic boxer just take that individual apart. And I got to think, and I said, you know, we, we, we call it the sweet science and we watch, but, now let's take it out of the ring and go back to the gym. And when you go back to the gym, the managers, you know, got the guy in the ring or he's got him dancing around a heavy bag or he's got him in a speed bag uh, or a double end bag. And he's working combinations. Well, the combinations in boxing are nothing more than the techniques in the Oriental martial arts. It's combinations of movement, so that you can, at some given point, spontaneously move, right? A beautiful boxing combination where something is set up with a jab uh, into a cross, and then all of a sudden that third strike of a, of a, of a good left hook just takes the guy out, that's nothing more than a, that what we would call a technique. Um, and the only reason it's effective is because this individual has drilled it. Drilled it, drilled it, drilled it, drilled it until he can do it in his sleep until he has drilled it in such a way that in the chaos of that clash in the boxing ring, he sets it up perfectly. Why? Because his body's used to moving in that way. Why? Because he's drilled it into a somatic memory. We in the martial, in the Oriental martial arts should strive to do the same thing now. The beauty is, is now what happens when we begin to spontaneously move, okay? Uh, Oriental martial arts, you see old-time uh, clips of the uh, 60s and 70s. Uh, I won't say bare knuckle. You know, they did have that little piece of foam over their knuckles. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, it was, it was, it was knockdown drag out at that time. Uh, I can remember uh, going into the very first sparring session where somebody said, oh, yeah, they've got these things that go over your hand and your feet. Um, and, you know, the big thing was at that time it was, well, that's going to just take away people's ability to have control. Well, it's not like they had a whole lot of control to begin with. Um, some people <laughs> just used it as an excuse to hit harder. Uh, but still... Having that, um, having the nature of spontaneity in the movement, okay, is what really nails down what the goal is for the techniques. There's a, there's a debate that goes on in the martial arts today that basically says, you know, what are techniques for? 
and technique-based systems ask an awful lot of this of themselves. And I think it's a good thing to think about. Are techniques meant to be a laboratory of motion just to teach you? Or are techniques meant to be used completely on the street? My answer to that is yes. To both of those. Yes, asterisk. Okay. And because it's both of those, it means either one could happen. But it's the responsibility of the individual to train, 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 so that you have the option of having both of those. So I think I got off subject there a little bit, but I hope that answers the question. No, actually, I think it was directly on subject. It's, it's exactly true. So you studied a whole bunch of different styles and systems at this point in your career. So I'm curious. So of the systems that you have studied to this point in your career, uh, which ones do you feel are the most technique-oriented? And then for the ones that you feel are not as technique-oriented, do you think they're possible to teach in a technique-oriented format? Well, I think that um, many of the systems that I've studied have been technique-oriented, uh, even along the lines of you know, some of the Korean uh, systems, one steps, two steps, three steps. Uh, you know, those are kind of harkens back to what I mentioned before about what is a technique. You know, a technique, uh, rather than the Chinese arts that, you know, name a technique and say it's for this particular attack, I think, you know, you can be a little bit nebulous on what constitutes a technique. Um, but obviously, Kenpo is highly based on techniques. Hapkido, somewhat. Um, I, what I found unique about Hapkido is that you have the nature of um, maybe a dozen or 15 to 20, depending on, on the movement, that especially when it comes to uh, joint manipulation, you have a basic movement that can be applied to different joints and different levels. Uh, uh, so though that is a technique in and of itself, the ability to flow back and forth between ranges and uh, uh, vertical levels on an individual for that is, is really what I like about the art of Hapkido. Um, it's probably the loosest of the arts that I've studied when it comes to technique, but you still have to do the fundamentals properly uh, in order for any range or any level to be effective. Um, primarily, Kenpo, I think, is the strongest oriented technique one. Uh, I also think that it's the most abused when it comes to technique. What I mean by that is, is that there are many Kenpo instructors out there, especially given the um, uh, nature of some Kenpo derivatives that have countless techniques. In doing that, that focus on the technique, the technique, the technique, so that now that becomes the individual's focus for uh, uh, advancement, it really takes away from uh, the student's ability to take the components of those techniques and to use them spontaneously. Um, that's one of the reasons, quite frankly, that I like the IKCA Chinese Kenpo system. It's difficult 
for some individuals without, uh, um, you know, numerous people to work out with to really hone down on that spontaneity aspect of the system. But that really, at the end of the day, that's the only way that the system is going to be uh, fully functional on the street. And that goes true for any martial art, uh, whether you want to call it, uh, you know, bull in a circle, monkey in a barrel, you know, uh, dragon in a lake. I've used, I've heard all of those terms used for that 360 degree spontaneity drill, you know, circle of humiliation, all of those things. If you don't do those things and you don't do those things on a regular basis, you're cheating yourself. Uh, and, uh, because it, it, takes away your ability to adapt on the fly. Um, kind of straight a little bit away from your, your question there, but uh, technique is only as good as how you pair it up with spontaneous movement uh, because that in and of itself is the very nature of self-defense. You know, the more you concentrate on, detail inside the class the more you're able to work and flow in and out of that detail in a street environment and i don't care which art you're studying uh, you got to take that away from from what you do um, and and whether you want to call it techniques whether you want to call it drills wh- whatever you want to call it uh, you got to have that ability to do that uh, or quite frankly you're not using or not properly using the tools that you've been given. Well, I mean, it, it didn't really stray too far away from the topic at hand because it delved into a whole lot of different key subjects there. We're talking, you know, techniques are there to teach you, uh, as you said, yes, both the relative body positioning and a default response to a situation, as well as movements that you can use in spontaneous movements later. So all of that stuff becomes crucial. And even if you look at the modern education system, you know, we're looking at uh, everybody learns a little bit differently. Some people learn more effectively when they get out and move. Some people learn more effectively when they can listen. Some people learn more effectively by reading it. And then others, you know, learn more effectively by watching. But in all of those cases, the big piece to that is that you're looking at trying to hit it from all of those pieces. Uh, you know, you you need the visual, you need the auditory, you need the movement around, and then you need to be able to put it in your brain as well. That's the same parallel as what you're talking about of going from you know, your basics, and you have to have your techniques. You know, whatever you know, whatever your uh, definition of what techniques are, you've got to have those combinations to drill in uh, understanding of what you can do from which relative body position. Hashtag uh, trademark Bill Parsons. Um, and then you need the spontaneous pieces to really iron it down and, and teach you that position response training. It's the same exact methodology, so I don't think that was off topic at all. I think it hit all of them. Well, I would agree. Okay, so I agree with you that, that technique-based training is absolutely critical, and the spontaneous training is the second half of what makes that work. So you've been through Chinese systems, Korean systems, more Chinese systems, and today you're the head instructor for TKI, Triangle Kempo Institute. Now, I know you don't just teach Kempo there because I know you blend in everything else you've done with it, but what's TKI all about? Well, TKI is about teaching um, effective self-defense, um, not uh, not quick baked. Uh, you know, six weeks, eight weeks. You know, we're going to make you a killer type situation. This is folks are in it for the long haul. 
Um, so at TKI, though the IKCA Chinese Kenpo is our base system, and that's what I uh, rank people in, uh, people get a fair uh, dose of the art of hop keto as well. Uh, not so much the kicking techniques uh, that hop keto is known for, uh, but more so the joint manipulations and things of that nature. Um, so, uh, but I've got a small group of students. Uh, we're not big, uh, but people know and understand what it is they're learning. And that's probably, I think, one of the things that uh, uh, differentiates me from, um, you know, many martial arts instructors. And that is, you know, I go back and forth to make sure that my people know backwards and forwards and inside and out why they're doing something. I tell folks when they start with me, you know, if I don't care what art you're studying, but if your instructor can't explain why you're doing something and how it applies to the situation, then you need to find another instructor. Um, so, that's, you know, kind of where I come from uh, in my teaching style. Uh, and so far, it's worked out good for those that have stuck with us. So Now, you're also a member of the International Karate Connection Association, like myself. And that's where I originally met you back in uh, 2006. I think we met in person, but I think I've known you since 2002 or 2003. And you're also a staff instructor for the IKCA, right? That's correct. So you found the IKCA, I believe it was in 99 or 2000, been with them ever since. So tell us about your affiliation with the IKCA and why you chose that particular path. Well, come along about 1999, uh, I just had this, you know, I had been in hot keto at that point about 23 years uh, and taught various hot keto classes in churches, on military bases, in racquetball courts, uh, any place we could find a, a decent amount of space um, to do so. Um, sometimes uh, large classes. I had just, before getting out of the service, um, had uh, uh, was teaching out of my uh, two-car garage at my house in Merced, California, the last base we were at. Uh, and it's kind of interesting when you have a two-car garage you have two layers of standard-grade carpeting that are on top of one another with a quarter-inch foam mats underneath them. Those were camping mats that you stick underneath your sleeping bag. And I had 12 guys in that garage. Uh, so when you pair up with six, uh, six pairs of individuals tossing one another, you learn to be very precise in your throws. But um, having said that, when I left the service... Um, I really just kind of wanted to uh, go into something different. I wanted to become a student again. And directly after leaving the service, we moved to Florida um, and got linked up with a commercial taekwondo school in the area. And I specifically uh, went there with my son so that he and I, he was about 10 years old at the time, uh, he and I, could study a martial art together. Uh, I had a short affiliation with that particular school, uh, moved up to North Carolina to attend seminary. Um, and as I was in a pastorate after seminary in eastern North Carolina, I saw a Kenpo symbol on the back end of a car and was kind of 
saying, oh, Kempo, yeah, I remember that. Uh, it'd be neat to you know get back into Kempo. Uh, come to find out that Kempo symbol was on the back of a uh, police officer's uh, private vehicle. And just by chance, he happened to contact me uh, for some computer work at the time. I was doing computer work on the side. Uh, and I designed some business cards for him with the Kenpo logo. Uh, but we got into discussions, and that kind of fostered a, a um, um, desire in me because I'd always considered Kenpo to be unfinished business uh, to go ahead and go back and resume my studies in the art of of Kenpo. Uh, we left that area shortly thereafter, went back up to, uh, came back up here to Raleigh. And at that time, there were no established Kenpo schools in the area. So I started, you know, just trying to see what my options were. And that's when I came across the uh, Variety Connection. You know, tried and true, it was a ad in Black Belt Magazine back when they were still running that ad. And I'm like, what is this? And I did a pretty fair amount of research for months before deciding to bite the bullet and go with uh, with the IKCA. Okay, so that was how you got yeah. your start with the IKCA, and you're still with them now, and it's 2017. So uh, what's that period in the middle look like, and what are you doing today? <laughs> well, uh, today uh, I'm one of the instructors. Uh, Grandmaster Vic uh, contacted me back in 2013 and asked if I would consider um, becoming one of the video instructors for the system. Uh, so in 2014, he sent me a video and I basically did a critique uh, of this particular uh, individual, not something to be sent to the individual because he'd already made a decision. Um, so I sent the critique back to show that I could put two or three sentences together effectively and, and teach what it is that needs to be necessary to be taught uh, on the video lessons. And Grandmaster Vic liked it, Grandmaster Chuck liked it, and I've been a video instructor ever since. Uh, so that's been, what, coming up on coming up on four years now. Um, and it's been a joy to be part of that. Um, it's, it's nice to be able to take an individual, uh, both experienced and unexperienced, you know, and say, look, here's what we do, uh, along with, not only here's what we do, here's what we expect from you. Um, and having the ability to, to do that and be there for people and uh, have that one-on-one -on -one, um, relationship with them, uh, I found to be uh, very rewarding. It's, a, it's another facet of training uh, rather than the classes day-to-day, -day, um, uh, week in and week out. It's another facet of training that really forces you to uh, – really dig deep, you know, for your own understanding of the material. And, and that's what I've, that's what I've done now. And prior to that, it was just coming up through the ranks in the IKCA, um, you know, meeting, uh, terrific people, uh, from a variety of backgrounds that had anchored themselves in the IKCA and were, uh, contributing factors, people like the Cadenas, uh, people like, uh, Brenda King, uh, Larry Lauer, uh, yourself, Steve, uh, that grabbed onto this particular system and realized, you know, the potential of what's there uh, when learned and taught properly. Um, and so that's that's kind of where I've been at with the IKCA. Right on. on the on the flip side of it, on the flip side of it, I also 
noticed, uh, because I, I tend to be a uh, internet forum geek, uh, I noticed that there were you know, really a mixed bag and reaction to, uh, to what the IKCA was doing with their distance learning program. And I took it upon myself, and my wife still wondered why I did, but I took it upon myself to basically try to you know, help folks to understand that this, you know, is not a fly-by-night operation. It's a good, solid system, uh, and it's for, you know, distance learning is for some folks, not for others. That's really what it comes down to. Uh, there are some folks, no matter what you do, distance learning just isn't going to work for them, and that's okay. You know, they need to find a good local instructor and press on with their journey. But there's others that can learn and have learned uh, from distance learning, um, when it's approached properly. Well said, sir. And just on a side note, uh, thank you very much to Senior Grandmaster Chuck Sullivan and Grandmaster Vic LaRue. Uh, Vic LaRue retired from the IKCA earlier this year, uh, but we thank him greatly because without what he spearheaded for us, you know, Bill and I probably would have never met and this podcast wouldn't have happened. But in addition to that, the 600-plus black belts that are part of the IKCA wouldn't have earned their black belt with them either. So we thank him very much for his service, and uh, he's now happily retired. So... Uh, moving forward with that, though, you're training the next generation of IKCA black belts. So if I remember correctly, you currently have four at the time of this uh, publication, correct? Uh, locally, you mean? Correct. Yeah, three, actually. Got one getting ready to test. So That's what it was. Okay. So you've got, yeah, three of them that you've already had promoted to black and one of them getting ready here. Um, everybody that I've ever met that has either experienced directly or uh, talked to your students has the same commentary. They're always extremely respectful. They're extremely knowledgeable, and they're willing to share information with anybody who is willing to share with them. And that's that's the hallmark of setting the right expectations as a teacher. So um, I didn't tell you I was going to say that ahead of time on the air because I just didn't want to. <laughs> I, I felt like making you uncomfortable for a second. <laughs> well, you know, um, a sculptor, a sculptor can only turn out, you know. Uh, can only turn out good stuff if they've got good materials to work with, and I've been fortunate in that regard. And your son's one of your black belts now too, right? That's correct. And that was that was a long journey. Uh, my son Phil uh, started studying Hapkido with me. I want to say he was about eight years old at the time, eight, maybe going, maybe nine at the time. And um, we got to a certain point in his Hapkido training where obviously one of the things that you learn to do in Hapkido is to fall. As a matter of fact, it's one of the first things you learn. Uh, you can't really appreciate and know how to throw somebody and how to manipulate somebody until you learn how to fall. Um, so uh, got to a point, and we had this one particular fall. And I know this is a side note, but I just wanted to share it. Got to a particular fall, no, and he... Um, Basically, you know, drew up every bit of his, you know, nine years old and said, I don't want to do that, you know, and because he was, you know, it, it didn't come to him right away. Uh, and I said, OK, that's fine. You don't have to learn it. OK, well, let's go ahead and press on with the other material. Nope. Doesn't work like that. You don't move past this point until you learn how to do this fault. So he actually quit the class. Uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, you know, many years later, uh, you know, he got the, I, uh, saw me, uh, you know, back going back into Kempo 
and he began to study uh, with me. Uh, my first three original students, uh, him and two of his buddies, um, you know, they all got up to uh, all they all got up to brown belt together uh, in the IKCA. Uh, two of them have progressed to black, uh, but um, you know, they were uh, kind of chagrined when I first brought up, uh, you know. So I heard one of you was in the martial arts. Who is it? And they just kind of deflated at that point, resigned themselves to a conversation uh, about the martial arts. But then they realized maybe the old man knew what he was talking about. And we moved forward from there, and they've literally become my best students. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. I'm sure he'll appreciate the shout-out. And I'm quite certain if I got him on here, he'd have nothing but glowing praise for you. So I won't do that to you. (laughs) <laughs> we'll save him for down the road when you, you know, we'll save him for another interview down the road. So, okay. all right. Um, what do you think the most impactful part that you have personally gotten from teaching? I was not prepared when I started teaching. And this is both Hapkido and Kenpo. I was not prepared uh, when I started teaching as to uh, how much I would learn from my students. And I don't necessarily mean the physical aspect of the art. But teaching for me has been, I've gained more than I've given out when it comes to teaching. Uh, Because when you see students that are struggling with something and it forces you to really nail down what it is that you teach and why it works and how you can get across to this particular individual, taking that away has enabled me to increase my own abilities. Um, so the most impactful aspect of teaching is always being able to learn from your student. Um, and you learn through those questions. You learn through the struggles that they go through. Um, some of those struggles you've seen before, because you struggled with the very same thing. However, just because you were able to fix it in a certain way, and get to the point where execution of that particular thing uh, became easier doesn't mean that that's what's going to work for them. The fact that students uh, teach the teacher is probably the biggest surprise that I've had from teaching the martial arts, but it's also been the biggest blessing. That's awesome. I, I have found that same trait in just about everybody who is renowned as a teacher. So bravo, sir. Bravo. (laughs) let's dovetail off of that a little bit when you're faced with a particularly challenging student let's call it that i think that's politically correct enough way to say that right and (laughs) your job is to motivate them when they just don't seem to be getting it and they're struggling and you can just see it in their eyes that they want to quit what kind of tips do you have for people out there maybe that are listening that are you know newer into teaching and are struggling finding ways to help these people what do you do to help them get motivated so that they can stay hungry and stay wanting to learn and keep putting that effort and that one foot in front of the other? I think that occurs many times because people are looking at the totality of what they think they have to learn, whether it's for a given belt level or whether it's all the way to black belt, let's say, and they get overwhelmed. Okay. And you know, they begin to put pressure on themselves to say, well, I've got to get this, I've got to get this so that I can move on to the next step. And that ability to 
recognize that that's what they're struggling with just comes from experience. So what I do in times like that is that I pull them up short, not physically, but mentally, and say, you know, you're having a tough time with this. And, you're, you know, you're going to struggle with it until it just works itself out. However, what you need to do to keep from being discouraged is take a look backwards. Take a look at how far you've come up to this point. And I'll just begin to go over the things that they've had to learn to get to that point and remind them that, you know, when you walked in the door, you didn't know any of this stuff. And now you don't even give it a second thought. You just do it. And that's what's going to get you past this point because you have to appreciate where you've come and understand that this is not a make or break moment. Okay. You will get this partly because of the way we do things in class. Uh, or if it's a video student that, you know, the self-motivation that you need to have to get past this point is something that's quite frankly, really all on you. But in order to get past that point, appreciate where, what it's taken to get you to the point you are now. You, you don't understand how far you've come. And I'll tell that to folks. And when they think back on it, they realize, you know, I really have advanced. I really have learned these things. And when I first learned them, they were difficult. So, you know, I just remind them of how far they've come. And most of the time, it works. It, it renews a focus. It renews a, a desire that, you know what, I can get past this because I've gotten past the other things I've had to learn up to this point. And that's what I've found to be one of the most useful tools uh, in motivating folks to get past those plateaus, you know. And I tell them, you know, you're going to have plateaus. It happens. You're going to have sticking points. It happens. You know, just coming up through the IKCA, there were a couple of techniques, and I'm not going into details, that I just absolutely detested, you know. And some of it was because of the previous background that I had for similar movements. But the techniques that I didn't like ended up being the ones that I worked on the most. And now, I know for a fact, they've become, my, you know, a couple of my favorite techniques. So just, you know, realize where you, where you, how far you've come. And, and press on from there. That's, that's how I would handle that particular situation the majority of the time. Right on. So you've got a couple of your guys now that are also teaching for you too, right? That's correct. Okay. Got some local uh, assistant instructors, yeah. Okay. So in their development, what do you look for in a potential person who's come up through the levels and you're starting to look at him to see, is this guy going to be one of my next assistants? Is he eventually going to be a teacher in his own right? What, what specific traits are you looking for? Number one is attention to detail. <laughs> and that's... This is audio reading. only. I wish you could see my face because I've got my quote-unquote surprise look on. <laughs> um, but it's attention to detail. You know, the ability to explain why it is that we're doing what we're doing. Now, I approach the teaching a little bit differently, and this probably leads to why that's the answer. Um, but when somebody starts with me, I give them a card of the uh, requirements that we have, 
and there's three columns on that card. And those three columns are labeled T-E-D, TED, okay? And what it is is those columns are checked off, and I tell, even, even a person coming in has had zero martial arts experience, I say, you know what? All of these columns have to be checked off for each individual item on this list. T stands for the fact that you've been taught it. That's an easy one. We can check that off at any given time when I teach you the technique. But then, as you progress, E stands for explain. You need to explain to me why we do what we do in that. Why do we punch like that? Why do we block like that? Why do we do the maneuvers like that? So you've been taught it, you explained it, and then finally, after you've been taught it, after you explain it, you need to demonstrate it to me. And that gives me the feel. So you'll notice that the physical aspect of it is at the beginning and the end, but the mental aspect is sandwiched right in between those two. And I don't let them demonstrate to me until they can explain it to me. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a lengthy process, but that's, that's the way that I teach and that's the way that I approach what it is that they're learning piggyback on that to my instructors i expect that attention to detail to be there when they're teaching somebody but of course you give detail in doses you give how how much they can handle at any given point i can demonstrate something i'm not going to give you all the detail on it the first time i show you a technique but once you begin to have the general gross movements of the technique now that's why we, be, we begin to add detail to it. Uh, well, you know what? That's, you've got the general movements of the technique down. Now consider doing this. Consider bending the knee here. Consider adjusting the foot here. Consider hitting and punching at this angle. Consider blocking more on this direction as opposed to this direction. So that's, that's how attention to detail factors into how I teach and how I expect my assistant instructors to teach. And luckily, so far, it seems to have stuck. It's kind of hard not to when you, you know, cram it into the heads that much time, you know what I mean? Okay, so let's do a couple of final questions before we get to the wrap-up here. So, uh, who do you put on your Mount Rushmore of the martial arts? Mm. And for the record, just about everybody I've asked that question to has said, well, four is not enough because then you leave people out and then they get mad. So, you know, <laughs> you can modify it if you want. It doesn't have to be specifically four. But, you know, who do you count as your biggest well, influencers or, uh, you know, your your big few people in your in your history of martial arts for you personally? For me personally, when I look at the martial arts, I think of two two divisions of the martial arts, the physical and the mental. Okay. Um, obviously on the physical, given my background and my exposure, you know, I would put people like, uh, Ed Parker, uh, and Bong Su Han, uh, up there. And because of the physicality nature of what they do and their ability and what they developed, uh, in, in, in the arts that they specialized in. So that's the physicality aspect of it. Uh, but it's not one or the other. I mean, obviously, they were huge mental giants as well. But on the mental side of the house, I would put up three individuals. One would be Bruce Lee. 
and run the mental side of the house here. Uh, and people think of him as such a great physical specimen, and he was. Uh, however, it didn't stop there. Um, but Bruce Lee, and I would put Chuck Sullivan uh, for the mental side of the house, because both of these individuals knew that the totality of what you do has to graduate from uh, just rope physical movement into the spontaneous nature of the uh, of the arts uh, and of, of, of good, true, effective self-defense. So I would put those up on the mental side of the house because of their their ability to, you know, say, hey, what I'm doing isn't working. What I'm doing could work better. And I think those two individuals, in my experience anyway with martial arts, have done the best they can to, you know, foster that type of thinking. Uh, and that's how people become thinking martial The best martial artist is a thinking martial artist. Um, the more you think on the mat, the less you have to think on the street. And then the third one, from the mental aspect of the art, is an author. That author is uh, Major Forrest Morgan. And he wrote a book called Living the Martial Way. And Living the Martial Way is required reading of my students because it is a book that encapsulates. And even though he comes from a very strict Okinawan-based system in his style of thinking, the entire process of this book is thinking about why we do martial arts, not any particular style of martial art, but what it really truly means to be a martial artist as opposed to somebody who just does martial arts. Um, so those three, to me, encapsulate the mental side of the house uh, with the systems that they were involved in, Ed Parker and Bong Suhan, on the... Uh, on the physical side of the house. And on the last person that I would say that has had the biggest impact on my study of the martial arts, and that's my wife. She has always stood by me in all of the studies. So I want to make sure that I mention her because she's influenced my thought process in that I can do this uh, and I should do it. I just don't want to let that pass uh, without mentioning her. You totally stole my next question. My next question was <laughs> going to be, I know you're just as studious in the mental side of the house as you are on the physical side of the house, and I was wondering what was on your reading list. So that you already gave us one. What other books do you recommend for everybody out there? Uh, ooh. Well, I would say go to www.trianglecampo.com and read the reading list that I have for my students up there. Uh, so that's the easy way to say it. Uh, um, what other ones right up there with Living the Mercial Way? Actually, one of my favorites, and it's so easy to read. I call it a, uh, a, a bathroom book that you stick next to the toilet, you know, uh, if you're going to be in there for a while. But that's Zen in the Martial Arts with Joe Himes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, I tell my students, and it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, the three major instructors that are referenced in that book, Ed Parker, Bong Suhan, and Bruce Lee, um, 
you know, I have a uh, almost a uh, uh, direct lineage to. And what I mean by that is, is that uh, Bong Suhan was my instructor's instructor in Hapkido, Ed Parker is my instructor's instructor in Kenpo, but Bruce Lee uh, taught Jerry Poteet, who taught Vic LaRue. So, you know, we kind of have that tie-in everywhere. But uh, it really is an encapsulated little book that you can take those vignettes and learn so much from uh, in not, again, the physical aspects of what you do, but the mental aspects of the martial arts. And another one of my favorites is uh, actually Aikido in the Dynamic Sphere. Oh, good one. Uh, uh, Westbrook. Okay, that is a that is a well written encapsulation of a mindset. That's what it really comes down to. Martial arts is a mindset. I don't care what we do with our body. If you haven't got the mindset when you're walking in the door, just pick up a baseball bat or a gun because it's going to be just as effective. So. All right, my guest today has been the one and the only Bill Parsons out of Raleigh, North Carolina been a really good buddy of mine all the way back since 2002 or three i forget it's been forever it seems like so he's a brother in the arts and he's one of my personal mentors i, I ping him for advice all the time on stuff and he's been an advisor to my personal organization for several years now and we are absolutely grateful to have him it's been a wonderful conversation with you today sir thank you so much for joining us and what no, I wanna, my pleasure what i want to do before we finally sign off for the day is we have a worldwide audience out there who are listening to this podcast and I want to leave them with some words of wisdom from you. So what would you like to send out for us? I'd have to tell folks to enjoy the journey. Um, focus on the process. You know, when uh, when Jiguro Kano introduced the colored belt system into uh, the martial arts, um, I think from an external perspective, he did the martial arts world a big favor because it helped people to quantify the different levels of progression in the arts. But from an internal perspective, I kind of wonder if he didn't uh, mess something up because people have tended to uh, gravitate towards the external representation of the arts. And internalization is where you really become a martial artist and that is a process and during that process you're going to encounter three types of people and you really need to learn to appreciate all three you're going to have teachers and training partners and students um, teachers you really got to remember that just as you stand on their shoulders, they stand on the shoulders of the people that came before them. Um, training partners, I mean, let's face it, they're donating their body uh, so that you can learn. Uh, and we have to understand that, you know, that's kind of what we're doing too when we, uh, when we work out with people. Um, and your students, if you, if you have the opportunity to have students, uh, cherish them because, uh, and keep your eyes open because there is a strong possibility that you'll learn more from your students, uh, not more, but you can learn just as much from your students as you did from your teachers. All of those categories are given you uh, really their best 
that is their time. Um, so appreciate that. Understand it. Enjoy the process. Enjoy the journey and help others that are in that journey with you to enjoy their journey as well. I think that's probably what I would have to say. All right. Uh, once again, sir, it has been my pleasure, my honor to have you on the show. If people would like to get a hold of you, how would you like them to contact you? Um, well, before I go into that, I want to say thank you, Steve, uh, for reaching out with this podcast. It's needed. It is. It's welcomed. You may get a big reception. You may get a small reception at the beginning. But as people learn about this podcast, more and more people will benefit from it. So thanking, thank you for taking the time. Uh, thank you uh, for considering me on your list. Uh, it's appreciated. But if folks want to get a hold of me, the best way to do it is to go to www.trianglecampo.com and just shoot me an email, and I will be uh, more than happy to respond. Got a uh, email capture form there that you know send whatever message you like, and I'll get back with you. I will take the liberty of uh, putting a link to your website when I post this podcast. That way, people can find you easily. Okay, that works. And just for the record. It wasn't so much me reaching out, sir, as it was you have been requested. So uh, I'm happy that you finally said yes. I have had a great conversation for the last hour and a half. I really do appreciate it. Well, I'm glad I could help. <laughs> All right, brother. I think that's about it for today. I'm going to uh, go ahead and sign off now, and uh, we will talk soon, I'm sure. All right. Take care. All right, brother. Have fun. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I always enjoy talking with Bill. Like my buddy AC, we're both so freaking busy these days, our communications are usually limited to text messages or emails, but sometimes we get five or ten minutes a week to chat and catch up. I was bugging him for a good while to get on this show, and I'm glad we were able to make the time to get this one in. Hope everybody else enjoyed it as well. Okay, preview time. Episode number 11 is going to feature the one and only IKCA Senior Grandmaster Chuck Sullivan. I made a joke one time in conversation with Chuck and he laughed, so I feel it's fair to repeat it here. If you're in Kempo and you don't know who Chuck Sullivan is, you're living under a rock, in a cave, buried in a glacier, hurtling around on a comet out there somewhere in outer space. He's been in the game for almost 60 years at this point, and he's still active in teaching every week. He's a wonderful human being. Tune in next week for part one with Chuck Sullivan. If you like what you're hearing so far with these episodes, share the positivity. Ripples in a pond. Tell someone you think might enjoy it. Share the links around. Together we can help people just by letting them share in the great messages our guests bring to every episode. Find us at www.artistemotion.com, artistemotion.com slash iTunes, and leave us a rating or a comment. Artistemotion.com slash Google Play, and leave us a rating or a comment. On our Facebook page, Artist Emotion, send an email to pod at artistemotion.com. Alright, that's all for this episode. I'm Steve Zalazowski. Catch you next time on the Artist Emotion Podcast.